Welcome to the 5am grind. Our mission is to create content to help you pursue your dreams in entrepreneurship or land that dream career. Tune in every week to get insights on mindset, goal setting, lifestyle, and exclusive interviews from leading entrepreneurs and business leaders across the country. Today on the 5am grind. Wait, 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 wait. We didn't do the intro. Welcome to the 5am grind. <laughs> Harris, how's it going? It's going well. How's it going with you? It's going well. All right. You can get to it. <laughs> <laughs> so today on the 5am grind, we've got our first um, guest interview. We're delighted to bring you the first guest interview with, with Jim Estill. Yeah. So Jim Estill is a Canadian serial entrepreneur, recipient of the Order of Canada and recipient of Canada's Top 40 Under 40 Award. Jim started his first company called EMJ Systems in university and eventually sold it for over 50 million. He then served as one of the founding board members of Research in Motion and then became a venture capital investor. In 2010, Jim published his first book called Time Leadership Lessons from a CEO and then later published another book called Zero to Two Billion, The Marketing and Branding Story Behind the Growth. In 2015, Jim became the CEO of Danby Appliances, and in 2017, Jim bought Danby Appliances and helped grow the company's revenue to over $400 million. In 2018, Jim spent over $1.5 million of his own money to sponsor almost 300 Syrian refugees. Mr. Estill is also a seed investor, board advisor, and a, a mentor to a number of successful Canadian companies and startups. So without further ado, here's our interview with Jim Estill. Enjoy. Yeah. All right, so welcome to the 5am grind. Today's guest interview is Jim Estill. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for being with us. Um, so we'll dive right in. We'll cover questions about your career, your trajectory as an entrepreneur, um, and your life in general. So just going over the first question, you caught the entrepreneurship bug pretty early. Um, you started your first company in university. What sparked that desire to become an entrepreneur? Um, well, really, I, I was an engineering student. I, I wanted to design circuit boards because I'm a techie nerd at that time. And uh, I needed a computer and I got a better deal if I bought two of them. And back then computers were very expensive. So I right. bought two and I sold one Then someone else wanted one. So I bought another two and then someone wanted a printer and then uh, they needed a hard drive. And then I bought some memory. And next thing you know, I'm buying and selling computers. So I, and, and at the same time I was designing circuit boards. So I actually did launch that business and did design circuit boards and did, did do that. But simultaneously I'm buying and selling computers and that's the business I'm known for because I grew that business ultimately to a couple billion in sales. Right. And then you sold it, I believe it was in 2005. Uh, that's correct. Okay. Okay. And then what did you do after that? So did you go under, did you retire? Did you take some time off? What did you do after that? Yeah. So I um, stayed with the company that bought my company for uh, five years. Okay. And uh, then I retired. 
And I was retired for about five years. I moved to New York because I wanted to do a stint in the States. And I thought it'd be exciting. The reason I chose New York instead of Silicon Valley was it was closer to where I am in Guelph or Toronto area. And uh, my parents were aging. Then my dad got sick after I was there for about five years. So I moved back to Guelph. And um, although I was retired, I sat on some boards. I uh, you know, was doing some angel investing, um, doing some mentoring and stuff like that. One of the boards I sat on was Danby Appliances. And right. the CEO of Danby Appliances resigned. It happens to be in Guelph, which is where I live. I said, I can go in and run it for a while. So I got in, started running it again, and I realized that's where I get my juice is running a business. So I said, oh, I'd like to do this. And then I said, okay, that'll be my next decade gig. I'll, I'll run Danby Appliances. And then the ownership group said they wanted me to sell it. So I said, wait a minute. I mean, that's my next decade gig. And I said, how much for? They told me. And I said, okay, great. I'll take it. So I bought the business. Um, and that was about five years ago. So that's when I ended up owning Danby Appliances. Wow. Okay. So you did that pretty late in your career, you'd say? I don't know. Would you consider that pretty late? Why'd you decide to take such a risk? Because obviously buying a company involves risks. Um, why'd you well, decide to do um, it at that point? Well, partly because I, I had originally bought into the theory that you start your business, you grow it, you sell it for a lot of money, you retire. Mm -hmm. But I was in reality, I was too young to retire. And in reality, I was uh, I was in my uh, early fifties, and I, I I and I don't like being retired. And, <laughs> well, what I mean, did you like do during your retirement? <laughs> what did you do during well, your retirement? <laughs> I did some angel investing and I sat on some boards. I did some coaching and mentoring. I did some consulting. Um, but I don't, my hobbies are business yeah. and it wasn't getting the same juice from sitting on a board, making suggestions, coming back next quarter and saying, Oh, the suggest suggestion didn't get done. You you don't have the same control. So in reality, my interests are business. Um, I also developed my philosophies around wealth at that time, in around that time. And that is, um, business is a tool to do good and wealth. You need a certain amount to feel secure above that. You should use it to do good. So I use business to make money, to do good. And uh, many people say, Oh, business is bad. Yeah. I yeah. believe that. I believe we can have a bigger impact through business than through, uh, at least I can, than anything else. I mean, I could sit on the board of the United Way, which I did for um, a couple of years, but it, I, I don't enjoy that. I don't think it adds much value. Um, I much prefer selling wine coolers. <laughs> well, so, I mean, just to go, get back to, I guess, the beginning part of your career, was there anybody in your family that was that had the, the entrepreneurship bug that you saw, or was it just kind of you fell into an opportunity and then you kind of learned as you went along? Uh, so no, my, my father worked for the same company forever. And when I st started going into business, my dad said to me, it's okay. When you fail, you've got an engineering degree. You can always go get a job. And my mother okay. cried. And the reason my mother cried is that her father had gone bankrupt in business. And so she'd had a very hard life because the, the depression happened, like, um, yeah. Her father went bankrupt and had a fire, didn't believe in insurance because the depression, the insurance companies didn't pay, didn't believe in banks. Basically a really hard life. She thought, do what my dad did. Go get a job at yeah. a company and work for it until you get a gold chain and a pension. And that's the way life is. Now, about um, 
10 years or 15 years after I started my business, my father got downsized when he was about 55. So he worked for the company for 30 years. And then they said, oh, no, 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 you're, you're not going to get. So he came and worked for me. But and he became my biggest advocate as far as entrepreneurial um, juice. I, I, I although that's the company I talk about being my first company, my first first company was painting houses. So my dad um, wanted me to paint the house and he showed me how to paint. And then one of the neighbors said, oh, can you paint my fence? And I said, and he was going to pay me. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. How, uh, you know, and I went and painted the house and then uh, and then I said, oh, this is a cool way to make money. Um, I, I actually wanted to work at a children's camp, a church camp. But yeah. back then, church camps don't pay much. And it was only one month, but I have two months in the summer. No one's going to hire anybody for one month. So I started my painting business. Then I hired my brothers and then I hired my friends. And then I bought a truck and then I bought some scaffolding and I was too young to drive. So I was not supposed <laughs> to drive the, the truck. And, um, and so I, I had a pretty successful painting business that I, that I did through my high school years. That's before college pro painters. Right. And I, I would just take, that was before the age of cell phones. I would mm. take a, a flyer around and I had a little, little form to fill in and I would say, um, you know, let me paint your eaves and soffits and, uh, and yeah. frames. Um, it would cost you less than $300 or whatever. Would you like to? And then I gave my home phone number yeah. and then you call it and I call it, of course, genius name, Jim's painting. <laughs> and I put a little, uh, election sign type thing out on the lawn, you know, Jim's painting with the phone number, no website back then. Yeah. Um, I, and I set up the account at the paint store and I just go buy the paint and, uh, and that's, that was my first entrepreneurial experience. What was, what was the biggest, what was the biggest lesson you learned from that one? That first endeavor, what was the biggest kind of shock that you experienced getting that first taste of entrepreneurship life? Well, um, see, I had, I had actually had other jobs that paid, but I learned that I could make a lot more money painting houses than mm-hmm. not. At the same time, I, I learned some hard, hard lessons. I quoted, I, I don't remember how much I quoted, but I quoted like $500 to paint this huge frame house. And uh, I spent um, 80, uh, 800 hours on it or something. I mean, I, 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 I made 20 cents an hour. That's when I learned, you know, I got to, uh, well, well, actually, I even have this problem a little today. I tend to... Um, overestimate what I can accomplish in a day. I, I have my list even today. Here's what I want to do today. Right. Yeah, I yeah, won't yeah. get through this all. Right. Um, yeah. But we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a day, underestimate what we can accomplish in a decade. Yeah, sure. But that taught me how to quote better because in painting business, you're mostly, it's, it's mostly labor. There is materials, but the materials tends to be a calculation of number square foot and coverage of paint. Mm. Um, and uh, so that was that. My, my competitive advantage in painting houses was I was polite and I did what I said I was going to do. And in Woodstock, Ontario, where I grew up, yeah. that was enough competitive advantage to get me business because the other painters wouldn't show up when they had an appointment to be there. They'd um, walk with their uh, work shoes into someone's house. They'd uh, <laughs> throw I, their I, cigarette butts in the, in the yeah. hedge and they, they just were generally – pigs and it was easy oh, to compete. I, I think that's still a competitive advantage today. Yeah, it's today, hard yeah. to find contractors. Customer service is yeah. underrated. Yeah. Good customer service is so underrated. 
Yeah. And business. Well, well, and to some extent, that gave me confidence when I started my computer business. Right. Okay. Because I knew yeah. I could start a services business and make a living. I could make a fine living. Yeah. As a matter of fact, even when I was buying and selling computers and 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 but and had a business and I had you know five employees or six employees, I still would paint a few houses on the weekend once in a while because painting houses was sure money. So that was a way that I knew I could make sure money. And that that was, that was a fallback. It's a very good fallback. And I mean, I had a university degree and I was an engineer. I'm telling you, you made more money painting houses than you can as an engineer back then. And probably right now. (laughs) That's crazy. So how'd you deal with doubters? You said your mom was a little skeptical of you starting your business. How'd you overcome that? Because usually when family doubt you, right, you tend to take it quite seriously because if my brother says something or my mom says, I don't think you'll be successful. How do you overcome that? Well, there's two things I remember. One Mm -hmm. is um, I went home for Christmas, Christmas, uh, you know, two or three years later after starting my business. And by then I I didn't have a lot of employees. I had a dozen employees or 20 employees. I don't know. And my mom said to me, Jim, did you get a job yet? (laughs) Like this is two or three years in, I had 20 employees. Yeah. And, and she thinks, you know, I haven't got a job, <laughs> but what it actually drove me when my father said, when you fail, you can always do get a job. When I was at my darkest hours, I said, I will never fail. And it drove me to make sure that I didn't fail. So it had the opposite impact. Like I, there's no way I'm going to give my father the satisfaction of saying <laughs> his son failed in business. There is no way. And you know the way it is in early, early yeah. business. You're, 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 you, you, can, you can't make the payroll on Thursday and you're living on, uh, you're living on uh, a prayer. Years of beans, right? <laughs> yeah. That is nuts. Um, so I guess when you talk about failures, I'm sure you've overcome through obstacles, problems, et cetera, in business. What's your best way to cope with failure and just problems you're running into, et cetera? Is it just a sheer will? Is it the fact, like you sort of mentioned, there was internal motivation? You didn't want to prove your dad right? How do you get over it? Well, um, I have developed a philosophy around failure mm-hmm. that I want to have a failure culture. Having a failure does not make you a failure. Right. Not trying makes you a failure. Right. Um, one of the things I say is fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. And in my business, in my company, in Danby, I want people to take some risks, try some things and find, oh, that didn't work. Right. We need to try things. And businesses die when they start saying, I'm never going to make a mistake. Yeah. So I'm not going to try to do anything. So we're yeah. not going to bring out this new product because if we bring out this new product, it might fail. And you're right, it might fail. But the fail often, fail fast and the fail cheap, you have to say, okay, you're going to bring out this new product. But you're not going to spend $5 million on it. You're not going to risk yeah. going out of business for it. You're going to risk a, a manageable amount. How can you get the minimum uh, order quantity down? How can you, what happens if it doesn't sell? Can you, oh, in my case, I've got an out, outlet store. So, okay, well, worst case, we can sell in the outlet store. Worst case, uh, new product, what's the worst case? Well, you can discount it down to the price of the the less premium product, right? I'm Like Danby has a, a new product which I'm really excited by. It's a five-in-one microwave. So it's a microwave that has a toaster oven and has an air fryer mm-hmm. and a uh, convection oven. Uh, my my, Our theory is that people don't have any uh, counter space. So they don't want an air fryer next to their, and they don't want a toaster oven next to their microwave. 
and, and they don't have cupboard space for it. So I, I want one of these products. I'm a kind of guy that lets my, I would not replace my microwave unless it dies, but I'll replace it for this. Really exciting. So what's the absolute worst case in that? We produce a minimum order, minimum quantity, let's say 5,000, um, and it doesn't sell. I could price it the same as a microwave. Like I'm saying worst, worst yeah. case, yeah, yeah, and yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll move it out because yeah. if I said all oh, the same price and it's got all these other features, yeah, uh, now hopefully we don't have to do that. But, and I, and, and my other example is the outlet stores. And there's, we always have this list of people who are willing to buy deals, so to speak. And for that matter, when you're making, bring out a new product, we could be bringing out the wrong color. We could be bringing out the finish, uh, uh, uh gets tarnished or, you know, in which case, yeah, you get an off product. Lots of people would want it if you discount it enough. So. Right, 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 right. Makes absolute so, sense. Uh, so my question then, I mean, when you're when you had your painting company, um, <clears throat> you're very close to the decision making, right? You knew yes. you're you're the one who's quoting, you're the one who's marketing, you're you're basically doing everything, organizing. I'm assuming organizing the individuals to go in and paint, and you're 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 in it with them. With um, Danby, you're not necessarily going to be doing all of that. You're you're managing a lot of the people taking on different departments, but with a bigger organization, I feel like there is a bit of a, a competition between the managers and the innovators. You need managers to kind of manage departments, but they're not going to grow the top line. So how do you balance that? And how do you make sure, because from the start, you're trying to get innovators from the company to kind of rise up as well so you can pinpoint who those innovators are and who those managers are and kind of placing people where they're going to succeed um, with what their what their talents are so how do you kind of manage that in your current organization to make these decisions that you're making right now so i do talk about we want a failure culture yeah. so you're trying mm-hmm. to teach the managers we don't zap someone because ali tried something we say yeah. Good try, Al. You, 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 at least you did it. At least you, you try. Um, we do when we're making decisions, we always do it in, I, I believe in a, there's a great book called The Wisdom of Crowds. So just because I think something is a good idea. Yeah. No, let's, let's ask the crowd. What does the crowd think? If the crowd tends to agree, the problem we have is you can end up with groupthink. If I get a stand up and say, oh, I think this is a great idea. Everyone says, yes, they don't want to disagree with Jim. Uh, that must yeah. be... So you have to avoid the group thing, um, but then celebrate the wins. And, and at the same time, don't zap the failures and celebrate that you tried. I yeah, want right. people to try. I, yeah. it, it, as a matter of fact, when I'm, when I'm sitting on boards of directors, I say good companies have to reinvest some of their profits or they will have no future. If Danby were to take no risk, we will have no future. And, mm-hmm. and, and like, we have a good business. We can keep doing what we're doing, but um, 10 years from now or 20 years from now, you're not going to want to buy exactly the same freezer or fridge that you buy today. It's yeah. just not the way it works. So true. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question just about how you got involved with Danby. You know, some of the topics we cover on our, on our podcast tend to be around just the advice that people give you. A lot of people tell you you should pursue your passion, especially to a lot of younger people when you're in school, etc., um, did you become passionate about fridges? What do you believe in that advice in general? And people say, pursue your passion. Or do you think people become passionate um, when they try something? Just want to hear your thoughts there. Well, you see, when I was in university, I was taking engineering. I thought yeah. I was a techie and you love technology. So I'm buying and selling computers. Right. So I thought that's my passion. 
But over after you do it for 20 years, it was no longer my passion. What I learned my passion in is is business. Right. So that's okay. so is my passion fridges? No, my passion is business. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm in the fridge business, yes, how do I make my fridges better and how do I make them more reliable, more durable? How do I make them last longer? How do I sell more of them? So now I'm all about fridges, but it I wouldn't say that I'm Mr. Passion about fridges. Yeah. But well, you heard me talk about my five-in-one microwave. I, I get excited about why, <laughs> because now it's that is my business. That's yeah. what I do. Um, I, the other thing I'm doing in Danby is trying to apply high-tech um, methodology to a smokestack industry. The most uh, application of that is speed versus the because when I first came to Danby, it's like, oh, well, here's the model we're going to bring out and. Um, you know, 2024. What, what do you mean 2024? You're going to bring that up? Because, you know, in the computer business, it's like, uh, what do you bring out next Thursday? Mm-hmm. And so we had to, we're driving that speed through Danby Appliances to, again, to try to gain that competitive advantage because that's what business is all about is competitive advantage. And it tends to be little competitive advantage. It doesn't tend to be one great, big, huge competitive advantage. Sometimes it can be. If you, you know, you invent rocket science, then maybe you you do have it, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. You also launched uh, Shipperbee recently, which is your newest venture, I believe. That's correct. Okay, do you want to talk a bit about that, How why you decided to start something from the ground up? Because that's a total startup, right? That wasn't an established company. It's something you built from the ground up. That's correct. So that one came when uh, I was at Danby and I was in the factory saying, what else can we make in the factory? And say, oh, maybe we're not an appliance company. Yeah. We're a company that makes big boxes. So then I'm saying, what are the trends? I always follow the trends. One of the trends was everybody's buying things on Amazon and .com and parcel theft. So we at Danby designed a smart parcel mailbox that the UPS driver puts the product in in the smart parcel mailbox and you get an email or a text and you can look on the camera and see who delivered it. And it protects your product from porch pirates because it's enclosed and only you can open. It's got an app and stuff like that. Well, when we developed that, I'm studying courier business all right how many how big does it have to be how many parcels does fedex delivery how much and, and you see wow this industry is growing at 25 percent per year and they don't have enough capacity so that's when we invented the shipper b methodology and the hives which are the transfer mailboxes were based on the same technology as the danby parcel guard which is a smart parcel mailbox and um now that i'm ceo of both companies and so we recently sold Shipper B. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Tour Star, okay. which is kind of what we wanted to do. Like yeah. basically you start a business, mm-hmm. you launch it and then you sell it. So it, it, it did what I want, what we wanted it to do. And that can, it can change the courier industry the way um, that's done. Because instead of doing hub and spoke, which is traditional courier, uh, it's basically more like an internet node network where the parcels uh, hop from node to node as opposed to all hub and spoke. It's yeah. particularly Hello. good at COVID because we, we we don't use people to sort. It's all done with computers um, in these hives. That's fantastic! So congratulations on the sale. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. How do you how do you keep keep track of all it? Because you sit on multiple boards. You run Danby. You had this company which you obviously built from the ground up and then sold. Um, just in terms of your day, your year, how do you prioritize everything? Because it seems like you do a lot, and I'm assuming you have a family, you have people to take care of as well, and um, you have hobbies. Uh, well, unfortunately, no, on the, 
I'm fortunate now on the family front. My my kids are all grown and launched and live in their own okay. house, and, and they're socially distanced. So all we're ever doing is seeing them on <laughs> Zoom, anyways, right? Yeah, yeah, but um, um, early in business, I knew I had a time problem, a time management problem. So I read every single book and went took every single course and did everything I could to learn about time management. I actually ended up writing a book on time management. So I have a bunch of time management methods, but largely for me, it has to do with setting the right goals and focus, focusing on the important things because it's easy. And I still run into this once in a while. I go in in the morning and wake up at noon and I haven't really done anything. All I've done is replied to a bunch of emails and, you know, haven't accomplished the big thing. But if I keep my eye on what's the big thing, then uh, that's what moves me forward. Fantastic. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So I just wanted to ask a question about when you said um, what you're passionate about business, what is it about business? Cause when I'm listening to, for example, even the five in one um, appliance, it's not necessarily, the appliance itself, but it's like, it's that, wow, I solved a problem and people, it's innovative. Nobody else has this, right? So in the bigger picture of business, what is it that keeps you kind of just up at night, you know, engaged? Is it that innovation answering the question? Is it strategy? What is it that kind of brings it to life to you? Well, the bigger the business is, the more that the CEO should focus on culture and allow everyone else to make decisions. So I fo- focus on culture, let everyone else make decisions. By nature, I do a lot of the vision and strategy, and the team has to be good at executing and implementation. So that's, so I spend more of the time on that. As far as what's inspiring about business, I actually believe that business can be one of the most powerful ways to create positive change in the world. And I, I mean, I, I've just given everyone my secret. I focus on tiny competitive advantages and can you elaborate on that what what do you mean by tiny competitive advantages okay so um danby makes um refrigerators and freezers and whatnot but we're leaders in second appliances you you don't even know what i'm talking about because it's it's a weird space we generally are not your refrigerator in your kitchen we're the refrigerator in your basement we're the refrigerator in your dorm room we're the refrigerator in your garage in your workshop so we're second appliance. We're your, your uh, chest freezer. We're your wine cooler. We're a second appliance. We're not your primary appliance. Once we figure that out, our competitors, we compete with LG, Samsung, Whirlpool, multi-multi-billion dollar companies. They don't care that much about the bar fridge market because they want to sell $4,000 fridges. We don't sell $4,000 fridges. We don't make $4,000 fridges. We're making $249 fridges. You can imagine the focus that we get on a $249 fridge. They don't spend any time or resource on it. We can get real good at figuring out how can we do things better? How can we perfect the packaging? I mean, we're shipping a lot of our products on the internet these days. So we do massive studies on how can we make sure this, this stuff is shippable? So that it doesn't break in shipping. What do we need? Better packaging? Do we need better um, product design? Like, what what do we need? How do we need to reinforce it here? How do we make things shippable? Because we spend that energy on that, then all of a sudden our competitors say, "Well, what do you mean? We we have similar product. Yeah, you've got similar product, but you you end up with twenty percent shipping damage. It's it's we win in that uh, type of situation. So it's all about those little little minor competitive advantages. Nice. 
when you, I guess, so when you decide to go into a new category or launch a new fridge, etc., how do you decide whether or not it's going to be successful? Like, do you try to like it? Like you said, is it sort of like a fail quickly thing? Trial it out, test the market, and then fail quickly. Or if it's successful, just add more money to it and see if it works. How do you decide what to focus on or or, or prioritize when it comes to those decisions? Um, I mean, partly we, we do some really fast uh, market surveys to find out what customers want, okay. but it's fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. So we will actually make a uh, hundred fridges with a curved handle and a hundred with a straight handle and we'll okay. sell them in the outlet store and find out the ones with the straight handle sold out twice as fast as the other ones. Everyone likes straight handles. I'm yeah. just using that as yeah, an yeah, example. Yeah. That's like A-B uh, testing. Yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, like A-B like, testing. Wow, yeah. I did not know appliances. Uh, it, it, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, like one of our popular fridges is a cherry red bar fridge. Yeah. Oh, wow, it, okay. And it's a, why is it cherry red? The time we did cherry red, we did a green one and we did a blue one, a Danby blue and a, and a, a green one. And we had those products, but we only produced, I don't even know the numbers, but we produced, you know, a few hundred of each and found out everyone loves cherry red. They don't want the blue ones or the green ones much. We no longer sell the blue ones or the green ones. So it's trying different things. Um, and to some extent it's going on trends. Um, I, we try to trend watch. What are people looking for? I mean, on our bar fridge, we, we did studies. I mean, first you thought, oh, bar fridges, it's beer fridge. Everyone's storing beer in it. And then you go and do the analysis. No, a lot of people are using it as a secondary fridge, overflow fridge. And then you look at it. Oh, mm. so you don't want to design it so it's only good for beer. You want to design it so that it's good for extra vegetables, especially now in pandemic. Right. So that type of thing. Um, we're very successful on what's called an all fridge. So it's a fridge with no freezer. Why is that? Because if you're buying just a second fridge, you, you just mm. want a second fridge. And mm. what, what do you want another little compartment? But if you look at it from a cost point of view, it costs a lot of money to put that other little freezer compartment on a fridge. So get an all fridge and, and possibly an all, an all freezer. So you can have matching if you want both or you can get a chest freezer if you want a chest yeah. freezer. But it's those little things that if you go and look at the competitors, they tend to not be as um, strong in those products. And to some extent, competitive advantage can be if we're first and early so right now, other people are coming up with their all fridges, but we were we're a little early on it and uh, whatnot. I mean, right. another trending another trend in COVID is uh, we have a huge business selling to hotels, right? And motels. Well, of course that dies, mm-hmm. but those same mm-hmm. fridges, everyone is now not wanting to go to the grocery store as much, so they move into the home market. Except the home market wants actually a bigger fridge than what you want in a hotel room. Hotel room trend was smaller, smaller, smaller. Get it down to one cubic foot. Well, in your basement you don't care if it's three cubic foot or four cubic feet you want a little bit bigger so that's okay it just means you only you do the bigger versions not the smallest versions right okay so i think i know the answer to this question already but i want to ask (laughs) are you more first to market or refine what's in the market what's your mindset uh we actually are not first to market but we are first to market with some innovations okay in that but we're not bringing out the first um bar fridge or the first freezer. Okay. So we let other people bring those out. I mean, we're, we're just bringing out an air fryer now. Air fryer has been on the market for yeah. a couple or a few years, right? But we didn't want to just go and do, well, we'll do an air fryer just like everyone else. No, we're doing it in our way, um, which gives us competitive advantage. So you will not, I don't think you're going to find another five in one appliance, yeah. but next year you will. Other people have the same thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then are you... And this is a follow-up. Uh, are you volume or margin? Where where do you 
put yourself uh, not just in terms of what you're like overall just your mindset as a bit entrepreneur where where do you push we tend to be more um volume than margin we tend to be a value brand yeah like that. people tend to buy us because we're a, a value priced yeah. brand not because we're the most premium in the market. Some of our wine coolers are a little premium, but see wine coolers are a different purchase decision. You want a wine cooler that's very cool so you can show your friends. You want a chest freezer that's very functional. What you want a chest freezer? Functional and durable. You want it to last forever, be no hassle. That's what yeah. you want. Wine cooler maybe a bit more sex appeal so that people, you know, you can yeah. be snooty and show people your wine, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah got it. So our, our podcast is obviously called The 5 a.m. Grind. We've discussed on a previous episode just what our morning routines are like. What does a morning, typical morning routine look like for you? When do you start your day? When do you end? Anything that you try to keep insisting, maybe meditation and stuff like that. What does that look like? So I love the early morning hours. Okay. And there are so many things that I want to do that I can't even have time for all of them. So meditation is one. Exercise is, is another obvious. Um, I also do morning pages, but not every morning, and that's basically journaling. So those are three habits that I think are success habits that really launch my day um, well. Sometimes, though, I don't do the meditation. I will do it midday or mm -hmm. do it later in the day. So um, And it, it depends on my day. For it's worth, I never set an alarm either. I, I <laughs> rarely set an alarm. I mean, mm -hmm. I guess if I had a meeting you know, five, then I might set my alarm, but no. Yeah. What, what time do you get up in the morning? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I get up anywhere from 5.30 to 6.30, although okay. tomorrow morning it's uh, clocks move forward. It'll be interesting to see if I yeah. sleep at <laughs> 7.30. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see what happens. That's interesting. Okay. Okay, cool. And do you find that when you don't do your exercise or your meditation, you're sort of off balance or do you, do you, do you sort of see, oh, there's something wrong with my routine? Um, it keeps you grounded and very consistent, I would imagine. It keeps me grounded and I much prefer it, but I also have learned to not let it throw my day. Right. And that's particularly true on the exercise because I will get the exercise. Like, like whenever you read about exercise, what should, what should you do three or four times a week? So I'm going to get my three or four times a week. Am I getting seven days a week? Not necessarily. So I don't beat myself up too badly if I miss an exercise uh, thing. Another habit I have is the night before I make a list of what do I have to do. And that tends to launch my day better. And I even put on that list what my specific workout is. Oh, so wow, okay. specifically, I'm doing biceps and triceps today. I know that that's my lifting routine um, that I do. I look forward to some workout routines more than others. I dread my ab day, for instance, but I do do my ab day. <laughs> nice. So you, you mentioned you do that to-do list. Any other methods that you use just to plan for the entire week, month, or year? Um, like, for example, when 2021 started, did you do anything pl any planning for the year? Um, just personal productivity and planning. I'm just interested to get your take there. So I, I love, uh, I, I call it doing New Year's resolutions, but not really resolution, New Year's resolutions. I do vision statements. Okay. So I will say... At the end of the year, I will have sold half a billion dollars. I will have 
uh, open this new factory. I will have introduced X new products. I will have done. So I, I write it that way. And then I like reviewing it. I actually set these resolutions, not once a year, but twice a year. So I do it September 1st and January 1st. I'm, I think it's partly because September 1st is used to be when the kids go back to school, it used right. to be sort of uh, a restart mm-hmm. for the year. Yeah. Um, and January 1st, just because it's new year's. Uh, and I find I tend to work very hard during the year, but I get a little break at Christmas because other people don't work. And so I, there's going to be a couple extra days uh, around Christmas is what I find. Right. Right. Are your goals, um, I would say, what's the right way, pragmatic or are they more like, I mean, you're reaching stretch, for the stars. Stretch yeah. goals. Are yeah. You, yeah. Are they stretch type goals that you set them for? Well, I, I actually believe in having three goals. Okay. Mm-hmm. One goal is a stretch goal. And I got this when I was reading a book on running because I used to run a lot. So what's nice. your one goal? Your one goal is to um, finish the 10K in 38 minutes. That's a first goal. Second goal is finish it in 42 minutes. Third goal is to finish it. So one of the goals is achievable, highly achievable. One of them is, no, nah, that's going to be a real tough to do. And then what I do on a, on a goal even like that is I break it backwards. Okay. If I'm going to run a 38 minute 10 K, what's the training I need to do? Okay. That means that, um, you know, three times a week, I'm going to do five K at, at this speed. And, you know, I'm going to do this speed work and this blah, blah, blah. So I tend to take the goals and break them back into, um, what else I can do in it. And what's most important in my experience is the actions. So a goal tends to be all right, a simple goal, half do half sell half a billion dollars. Well, sell half a billion dollars. That's a nothing. What's the activities I need to do to sell half a billion dollars? Okay, I need to have five new large retail customers. Okay, to get five new retail customers, what it, what are the actions I'm going to do? I'm going to connect with 200 people in large these large retailers on LinkedIn. I'm going to like what what is the the process, right? Right. I'm going to go on your podcast. <laughs> little little <laughs> things. Break it down into little things. Got it. You, I, I also follow you on social media. And what I've noticed about you in the mornings or yeah, during the day is without fail, you always share a quote. Um, yeah. Is there a reason for that? You t- yeah, you, you do that every day as well. Is that part of your morning routine? Is that just something you like to do to stay active on social media? Well, the interesting thing is I don't actually do that every day. I have right. so I do it once every two weeks and do it do fourteen of them. You just see it every day, so it's it's set to go off every day. Um, the reason I do that though is to keep in touch with my network. Right. See if I connected with you on LinkedIn, yeah, um, and then. Uh, a year from now, you say, you know, who's that fridge guy? I don't, I don't remember, you know, you, you may or may not remember what, who I am, what I do, but I send that quote every day. And then you say, Oh, Jim. Yeah. I was thinking uh, I need to buy my, my wife a Christmas present. Let's see if he's got a a nice wine cooler, blah, blah, blah. So by sending that every day, it keeps me more top of mind. The reason I, I like to send quotations is it doesn't seem arrogant to me. Most of the quotes you see, I do, I, are not my quotes. There's it's quotes from mm. other famous people. Yeah. Yeah. It's also part of my belief in social media. 90% of what I do is for the benefit of the reader, not for my benefit. So I'm doing it to make your day. And, and how long does it take you to read my quote? Yeah. 10 five seconds. seconds. Yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, five yeah, seconds. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, some of them will resonate. Yeah, that's great. It, it doesn't even hurt. It's controversial. If you say, oh, that that I don't believe in that, it doesn't matter. I made you think. 
and you sometimes see Jim Estel, Danby Appliances, and you would be surprised how many people who I have not talked to for a year or more come back to me. So what's going to happen is you're going to interview someone two years from now who's putting up an apartment complex. You say, oh, you're putting up a 200-unit uh, apartment complex. I should introduce you to Jim. Jim. Yeah. And because and, mm. I'm kind of, I'm not top of mind, but I'm, yeah. I'm in out there enough without being rude. See, it'd be very rude if I sent you an email every day saying, here's the spam of the day. And here's my yeah. new product. Buy from me, buy from me, buy from me. Now, once I'm on social media, I do occasionally announce my new products. I, I, I will put a link to this podcast on my social media. <laughs> oh, so awesome. basically, yeah. So basically I, 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 you know, use it to amplify the news that's out there and I use yeah. it to send out some news, but largely it's for the benefit of the reader, not for my self-aggrandizement. Right, right, right. So stay top of mind. That's actually yeah. really smart. Yeah. That's really good. That's really good. I like that. What's one habit that you'd say has really contributed to your success? Did you always wake up early or is that a thing you did after you became a business owner? Um, were you always a morning person? Would you say is that the contributor to success or is it something else? Well, definitely. I, I've always um, woken up early. So early. Okay. I, that that's sort of in my DNA, mm-hmm. and that's partly because I'm very driven. So early in business, I had huge, huge work ethic. So I worked terribly long, and part of that was getting up early. But the one secret I have is do the worst thing first thing. I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. I do the hardest first thing, thing the first, morning, and yeah. I do first thing after lunch. And everybody has those things that you don't quite want to do. So it's do the worst thing first thing. I do it after my after my morning routine. So it's after I've got my done my meditation, done my exercise, uh, done my morning pages. Then my first thing is when I sit down to to do it. Because if I don't do the worst thing first thing, uh, I can actually get absorbed for a full hour and not do anything. I'll just reply to some email. <laughs> Most of it's gonna be spam. Uh, you know, mm. blah blah. Oh, check the news. See see what the see how many people got vaccinated. Like like next thing you know, an hour goes by, and. And the, I had this low-level stress. Oh, I should have got back to that person. Oh, I should have done something. So do the worst thing first thing. It's simple. And usually the worst thing, first thing, it's not that worst. Like once you get into it, it's not mm-hmm. that. I, yeah. I just commented I don't particularly like my ab day. Yeah. But there's never a day that I do my ab workout that I don't say, why did I Why did I procrastinate on that? I mean, it's not It's not that hard. <laughs> like. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. That's, that's, that's awesome. And then, uh, in terms of just, you clearly work really hard and have a bit busy schedule. How, what do you do to sort of unwind? Do you take time off? You mentioned, is it, did you take time off during Christmas? How do you sort of balance it out? Cause I, my philosophy has always been, you work really hard, but then sometimes you got to unwind cause that keeps you going to work hard, right? You take some, some, some rest. Um, do you believe in that as well? Or do you just keep going? Do you cope with it a different way? Well, I totally believe in it. Um, but it's a little more do as I say, not as I do. So I do tend to work hard a lot of the time that said, I'm a health guy. So I do work out and I do look after my health Yeah. and I don't always do that just in the morning. So I, I mean, I've got my Fitbit, I'll do my 10,000 steps today, regardless, I guarantee you I'll have my 10,000 steps in, which means I might have to go for a walk tonight. Yeah. That's fine. Um, so I have that, which is regular. I'm also the most boring person in the world as far as people say, oh, what are your interests? Do, do I golf? No, I don't golf. I don't follow sports. I don't, I don't follow uh, movie stars. I don't do any of that stuff. Um, 
my hobbies are not normal ho- hobbies. <laughs> you my read hobbies a lot. <laughs> you read a lot. Obviously. Well, well, like one thing you I do is I garden. So okay. I like gardening and I grow vegetables and I like cooking. I make soup and mm. blah, blah, blah. But that's not people say, oh, that's kind of boring. You should be doing something else. Uh, the other thing I, I'm going to do this year, I haven't done this um, every year, but I'm actually going to take three weeks vacation in the okay. summer and I'm camping oh, with wow. no internet. So I will do oh, a wow. complete internet shutdown <laughs> for three a, weeks. And I, where I'm going, there's no cell service. So like I'm off grid, off grid for three weeks. And I've done this. I haven't done three weeks. I've done a couple of weeks. I find for the first three days, I'm pulling my hair out. I need to find someplace I can get coverage up at the next ridge and whatnot. But after you've done it for a week, you just sort of get into the groove that it's not there. I do um, internet fasts uh, at least once a month also on one day on the weekend. And it like, it it doesn't sound like a big deal, but like, Shut your phone off when you're done this and don't turn it on till the same time tomorrow. And yeah. you'll find that when you start, it's withdrawal because yeah, right. it's where you look for anything. What's the, how cold is it out? What's the weather? What's the, uh, yeah. whatever. You'll find any but, reason to, to yeah. check your phone. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, and then I just wanted to ask you, as, as you look back at your life and, you know, you've been a very successful entrepreneur, you've had multiple businesses, what is it that you're sort of trying to leave or what kind of a legacy do you want to leave in Canada, around the world, et cetera? Do you think life in, the, in those terms or do you just think about the impact you've made today? Um, do you think about just legacy and what people will remember you for? Well, my ultimate goal is to influence more entrepreneurs and business people to practice yeah. social capitalism. And that is looking after all stakeholders, not just um, shareholders. So traditional capitalism is you want what you, you, you basically, it's a greed thing. I want, I want it, I'm the shareholder. I take all the money, yeah. but in conscious capitalism, you want to be good for the environment. You want to be good for the community. Mm-hmm. You want to be good for your staff. Of course, you want to be good for your customers. You want to be good for your suppliers. So looking at it more holistically, um, and that's where I believe that uh, business can be have a huge impact for social good. Um, I, I was I'm trying to think of uh, who I was listening to. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm a I, that's it. I'm another I'm a self development junkie, so I listen to too many nice. uh, podcasts and I uh, <laughs> uh, read too much and whatnot. But uh, someone said um, people go to church for one hour a week. We've got people for 40 hours a week working. What's yeah. the impact we can have in 40 hours a week versus one hour a week? And I'm not a religious guy or anything, but it, it's sort of put in, the, in those terms. It's a massive responsibility. We have more impact on uh, the other, another stat, the same, uh, the same guy said, uh, happiness in your marriage is directly proportionate to how well you get along with your boss. Huh. And and there's some of that. I mean, you hear that, you know, I, I'm upset in life. I'm going to go home and kick the cat, you know, like, yeah. or I, yeah. and, and, and actually for that matter, why, why is there uh, physical abuse in relationships? I mean, isn't that the stupidest thing to go and uh, hit the, mm. the person you love and live with? Well, they just happen to be there and they get the brunt of it where you should be. Mm. Um, it, that's probably not what is causing the, uh, the angst. Right? Yeah. 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 So I true. mean, I think that, uh, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like your generation, um, was a bit more 
in touch with their human side than even our generation, the generations that are kind of coming, they're getting more distant. Because and of the I, internet? Internet, and yeah. I just feel like it's like business, um, if you went far back enough, even if you go back like 50 years, 100 years, wherever, it's your, a part, you're paying, playing a role in the community, um, exactly like kind of what you're advocating, social capitalism. And then somewhere along the way, it turned into this huge money-making machine. But that's not where it was. I think this is like more a recent development. And I feel like in the future, um, it's moving more towards a more of a superficial reality. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense, but. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I do worry about phones, to tell you the yeah. truth. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I've well, you don't go into restaurants anymore, but you, you used to go into a restaurant. You'd have two people having dinner opposite each other on their phones. Yeah. Right. I mean, my grandkids, you want to drive them to, uh, uh, you know, from here to Toronto, it's an hour drive. They're in the back seat on a, a screen. Yeah. Well, what's yeah. that all about? Yeah. Like, well, at least we would fight with our brothers in the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> it's and I think like yeah. before you would have, when you'd have a conversation, you'd actually connect with people. Now it's yeah. more, what, what can I put on Instagram? Can I take a picture with the other person? And I think oh, oh, business oh, is transforming yeah. the same way because you're not necessarily the people who are hot at the higher levels of business are not connecting with their consumers. And so they're so distanced, which is why sometimes we get like, all this stuff like Wells Fargo or whatever was going yeah. on with them and like all these other, not just sure. Wells Fargo, but any business that kind of isn't sincere even towards their consumers. Yeah. I think you're, you've totally nailed something. And I think you, the trend though will, will be a pendulum that will swing back a yeah. little bit. I don't think the pandemic helped us. Yeah. The mm-hmm. pandemic oh, yeah. didn't help us is you're not in person. Yeah. You're, um, you know, you're doing it on screen. I mean, I do morning to noon, night um, um, video calls, but yeah. it's not the same video call mm. as it is in person. And I think that that's a problem. And then we're going to come out of that, plus all the uh, the stuff. And you're, you're also right on social media. You have to be careful even on what you guys do when you're interviewing me, because I don't like I'm actually just a regular person. Yeah, mm. I've been very lucky. Why am I successful? Luck. That's my advice. Have good luck. You will do well. But people will talk as if they're the genius, as if they've got it all yeah. figured out. Yeah. And we're all so deeply flawed people. Yeah. I'm not perfect. Yeah. And, and, and you guys could, you know, you'll find that there's lots of imperfections. And it, it's that authenticity that we lack. And I, uh, I definitely have seen people, they want to go out and do the Instagram photo. Yeah. So I am going to go push the kids down the toboggan slope once and as long as i get the good picture we're done yeah. back inside <laughs> it's not like we're gonna go yeah. have yeah. fun so yeah. what's what's your biggest advice what's the biggest change future entrepreneurs can make that can move the pendulum more towards the social capitalism side well i think it i think it has to do with thinking of all stakeholders not simply shareholders yeah. the other issue we have is we tend to like concrete numerical that's yeah. why financials are so easy it's concrete numerical you can tell how many dollars mm-hmm. and cents but what's really most important is actually intangible and it's yeah. really really tough and true wealth is your um I don't know what I call it. It's social wealth. I mean, yes, there's financial wealth, financial wealth. It's worth something, but social wealth is 
what's the wealth of friends and friendship and true friends. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a better security because I, I mean, I, I can lose all of my money, but if enough, but if I have friends, family, people, I don't live under a bridge. Actually, we're very fortunate in Canada. You, you, You don't, most people do not need to live under a bridge because, um, we have pretty good social safety net. Um, and what people who do live under bridges are lacking tends to be um, the social capital, not the financial capital, yeah. Yeah. Um, often compounded by drugs and compounded by uh, mental health. But it, it, it t- so mm-hmm. I focus on that social capital and part, it maybe even half of that social capital is yourself and self-care. And I don't mean that by being selfish but it would not be, I would not even be here if I didn't look after myself. You guys wouldn't be interviewing me. I, I know this, my, like I'm old and my classmates from university, many of them are retiring and I've gone to 50th or I've gone to anniversaries uh, and one time <laughs> you see these other people and you say, well, what do you do most of your life? Well, you sat on the couch and ate chips and drank beer and it kind of shows like you're, yeah. you know, you're not looking after yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so true. Um, I guess we have one more question, and then we'll we'll wrap it up here. What's one advice you'd say to someone who is you know confused in their life about their career? They're not certain about you know taking on a risk, a new business, etc. What advice would you want to impart them if it's someone who's sort of in the in the thirties, forties, or you know even fifties, and they're just confused about the direction they're going in their life? What's some advice that you'd you'd give them just about you know direction, career, etc. Well, there's a few pieces of advice. Mm-hmm. If you're depressed yep. and not happy and don't know where you want to go, help someone else. And I've learned that one of the best cures for depression is go work in the soup kitchen. Go help other people. Because if you go, like, if you think you've got problems in your life, I'm sure you have problems in your life. Yeah, sure. uh, great. Yeah. Go sign up at Salvation Army to serve uh, lunch tomorrow um, at the church. Right. I'm telling you, yeah. you will be kind of happy because you're kind of not your life. What you have is, I guarantee you, first world problems. It's not yeah. Um, yeah. third world so problems. True. So that's one um, suggestion. As far as entrepreneurs go, there's a fear. But what the heck go for it anyways. So just repeat that all the time. What the heck go for it anyways. And and the downsides are much less than you think. Um, Can you imagine if you, uh, you you guys start a business tomorrow and then you go bankrupt six months later. Does that mean that it it means you actually have more credibility because you You tried something, you tried, you have more experience. It's you got, you guys just earned the PhD, which you could go and and go to U of T and get uh, your PhD get it from the school of hard knocks and learn and don't get cynical. And like, it's just uh, it's part of your learning. Everything's a learning. Fantastic. I think we can, uh, we can leave it there. Yeah. Well, was just... Yeah. That was awesome. Thanks a lot, Jim. Much appreciated. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Thanks for being on the podcast. You have a great day. Thank you.